This is episode number 45 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the usually bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual, the number one pod. That's individual one pod. This is a very special episode of the podcast because, let's face it, it's number 45. Trump is the 45th president. I refer to his followers as, you know, cult 45. I love the poorly educated. And we're coming to a end of an era of the Trump presidency. We are now pretty much at the end of the Mueller investigation. After his uh, testimony uh, this week, we'll talk about that. We'll recap uh, what did and did not occur. Talk a little bit about uh, whether or not he still might be impeached, uh, although he's not going to be removed from office. And I also want to tell you what I really think happened in the entire Russia investigation. But let's uh, start with recapping uh, Mueller's less than stellar uh, testimony to Congress this past Wednesday. I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, well, we're we're forced to get into that. Uh, We really are. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Yeah. The reality is that, as I wrote for Mediate, it was not totally, but mostly a disaster. And it was mostly a disaster because of expectations and timing and also because Robert Mueller's performance was rather poor. Uh, here's just a short compilation to give you a little more sense of that. And the report is my testimony. Uh, I refer to the write-up of this in the report. I stick with the language that you have in front of you. Uh, I refer you to the report. And I, uh, I, I, uh, I leave it with the uh, report. I uh, leave the answer to the, uh, our report. If it's in the report, I support it as it is, uh, as it is set forth. If it's from the report, yes, I'd support it. Refer you to the report, if I could, for uh, uh, review of that uh, that episode. If it's in the report, I support it as it is uh, as it is set forth. I, I again go back to the text of the uh, of the report. I do not understand why he needed to be so uh, self censoring in his answers when sometimes he was not. I'm not going to get into that. I mean, th- th- that's a question of many that I have for Robert Mueller. That uh, makes no sense to me at all. And it it really handicapped in many ways his testimony. And I've said before, and it bears repeating, that because of the timing of this, which was all screwed up, partially because of his own reticence to testify, he needed to hit a grand slam home run. And as I've been saying for months – the bases are no longer loaded because the nation has largely moved on and there's no sense of urgency because after all, it was four months ago or so when the report was actually issued. Why are you testifying now? Well, it really bothered me quite a bit that Mueller had the gall to say that he uh, didn't subpoena the president of the United States for an interview that the president had promised because he was afraid of a long legal court battle that was going to delay things. Okay, well, then why did you wait four months 
to testify. I mean, I realize you didn't want to. It's clear why you didn't want to, because after all, you, you probably weren't up to it. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but that's the reality of it. So he's a hypocrite on that issue alone. Uh, and, and it didn't make any sense to me. Because uh, whether he was intimidated by the DOJ letter restricting what he could get into, uh, he clearly – I mean, look, I'm all for – uh, being careful in these situations. I understand he's under restrictions that the other side is not, but this was not a fair game. You have on one side Trump, who is willing and able to say anything at all, no matter how inaccurate, no matter how dishonest. Correct. And then you have the uh, his side, which is not only restricted from telling the truth, <laughs> I mean, or restricted to telling the truth, but you're not even allowed to tell the truth at certain times because of the subject matter, you're afraid of divulging some sort of privileged information or, or disrupting another criminal investigation. Uh, it, all of this played right into Trump's hands because uh, not only did Mueller have his hands tied behind his back, I mean, and not only could he not hit a grand slam home run, he couldn't even find his bat. I mean, I mean that's the reality of it. And so th- this was just not a fair fight. It was not a fair fight from the very beginning. And I'll get into a little bit later on as to, to why that was and, and, frankly, how I predicted that was how it's going to turn out. Only I didn't predict it was going to be this bad. If anything, it's just always, not always, but usually the case with my predictions, whenever I follow my gut instinct, uh, things turn out even worse than I anticipate or, or predicted. And having had a few days to reflect on Mueller's testimony, I'm still mad at him. I'm not quite as angry. Some of that has dissipated. Uh, And I will acknowledge that some of the criticism, including my own, is a little unfair and premature. In in other words, we're living in this world where because everything is perception and it's reality television. And we're trying to figure out what the morons of the nation are going to think. I mean, the reality is most people are not paying attention. So what is, it the, head, what is, what is the headline going to be or the takeaway that's going to be from the average person to this event where because it's getting extraordinary amounts of television coverage, the average American might actually be somewhat exposed to it. And, and so because we know that's the world we live in, even people like me who can't stand this reality that substance no longer means anything – we buy into it, and frankly, we help facilitate it because, you know, substantively, there were some incredibly important things that were said in that testimony that in a rational world would have rocked Donald Trump's presidency to its core. Correct. I mean, for instance, Mueller did say that when, even though he didn't subpoena uh, the president, that when Trump gave his written answers and said 37 times he couldn't remember key events, that he was lying. Correct. Now, that's potentially huge, but it got lost among the, the major headline. And the major headline clearly was that Robert Mueller was not up to testifying. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's the only headline people got. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. And so, so the, the, the narrative was, and it was set within minutes, within minutes, which is why it was a huge mistake, to let Jerry Nadler and the Judiciary Committee go first. Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee was far better uh, at trying to set this whole thing up. And so at the very least, the first few moments should have been Schiff and uh, Mueller together. 
uh, but it didn't work out that way for whatever reason. I do not understand. The only thing I can think of is incompetence or egos or something. And uh, the reality is that within minutes, the narrative was set that this is a big nothing burger. Mueller's not up to it. He can't talk about anything that's important. So you might as well tune out. And and this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And again, I, I battle with, am I helping that along? Look, if not that this is ever going to happen in a million years, but if I had been on uh, ABC's live television coverage as a commentator of the proceedings, I believe that I probably would have acknowledged that Mueller was not doing as good a job as he should have, but I would have emphasized, hey, look, can we please look at the substance? But I'm not that person. You know, I do a, a, a small podcast. Uh, I write a column for media. I, I've got a, a Twitter following that's pretty small. Uh, so I'm not significant. So I am able to say, look, this is the bottom line. Here's where we're going. This isn't going to have the impact that it was hoped for because this is going to be the takeaway. And, and it does bother me that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy when everyone else buys into the same thing. I mean, perception is reality. And in, but that's the world we now live in. That's the world we're now living in. We're better than that. No, we're not better than that. We are incredibly superficial. We are incredibly stupid. Uh, our media is broken. The liars have a huge advantage. The truth tellers are at an incredible disadvantage. And Mueller was just trying to tell the truth. And I will say this in his defense. While he was not up to testifying up to modern professional standards, especially in, in this media era, and he made a lot of mis- naive mistakes, including specifically with regard to the way he, he was manipulated by Bill Barr, and I will maintain that Bill Barr is the, is the biggest villain in how this whole thing went down as far as the perception of the Mueller report. He was actually pretty with it. If you, if, and I've gone back and looked at some of the testimony with regard to his ability to immediately discern whether or not what the questioner was asking him was true or not. And that's, you know, he's almost 75 years old. That's not easy. So it's not as if he was totally out of it or had no clue what was in the report. He just had an enormous amount of information to be stored in that nearly 75-year-old brain. And by and large, I mean, he, he told the truth. I mean, he had to correct a couple of minor um, inconsistencies or misperceptions because of the way uh, he answered a couple of questions. But it's not as if he said uh, unequivocally uh, something is true or something is false, and that turned out to be incorrect. So he did get a little bit of a raw deal, and I'm, you know, and I've been very concerned that I was one of those that was too tough on him. But you know, to whom much is given, much is accept- is expected. And he had a big responsibility. And maybe no one could have stood up for this responsibility or or achieved what he needed to achieve and and be able to meet this challenge. This challenge might have been too much for anybody. But he was not up to it. And the bottom line is I don't think he should have taken the job. Now, maybe two years ago he was in different health. Maybe maybe things felt he felt more strongly about his ability to do things back then. I don't know. We're probably never going to find out because I doubt Robert Mueller is ever going to do an interview about any of all this. Um, But he played right into Donald Trump's hands at every possible level. And if there was one thing that I really wish that Americans, as well as people throughout the world, 
would get from Mueller's testimony. There are some key facts, which we've gone over time and time again. But the number one reality is that Donald Trump has been totally lying for two years about Robert Mueller being on a witch hunt. Correct. This guy is not capable of a witch hunt either morally or physically. It just is not possible. It's nonsensical. It didn't happen. There's no evidence for it. And yet the the Colt 45 crowd, they totally believe it. Idiots! They really do believe Trump's narrative that somehow this was a, a coup effort and that uh, Mueller, this lifelong Republican war hero, was out to get Donald Trump. It, it makes no damn sense. And the entire investigation being a, a, a coup attempt on Trump makes no damn sense because, as I've said many times, and this cannot be repeated enough, nothing from the pre-election investigation, nothing from the Steele dossier or anything else that the intelligence agencies had come up with before the election, which was voluminous, ever leaked to anybody, was never made public except for a general intelligence agency pronouncement, which was completely blown away by the re- the uh, revelation of the Access Hollywood uh, grab him by the pussy tape. On the very same day, which I've always wondered about, whether or not that was simply coincidental or whether or not that happened on purpose. But the, the reality is that all that happened was they, they put out an assessment that Russia was trying to influence the campaign on Trump's behalf. But that was it. And you know, this, this narrative that, well, that didn't happen because no one thought that Trump was going to win. Baloney. Ten days before the election, James Comey, who was supposedly part of this anti-Trump date state conspiracy, came out and effectively won the election for Donald Trump by reopening the Hillary Clinton's email investigation needlessly. And that totally changed everything. It changed the polls. It changed the momentum. It knocked Hillary Clinton completely off of her game. And it was at that moment that if there was some sort of a coup we can't have a coup because he wasn't in power yet, but some sort of a conspiracy against Donald Trump, that's when you instigate the conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absurd to think that this would all occur and no one would know about it. Even the Steele dossier wasn't known uh, about until well after Trump had not only won the election, but also the Electoral College. So th- these conspiracy theories are just nuts. It, it makes no damn sense, and yet people buy into it and it's just so incredibly frustrating because you know these are these are people that i i used to agree with on things and they have bought into this narrative and boy do they believe it i mean they are completely convinced of it it doesn't matter now that Mueller proved he could not possibly been on a witch hunt even if he wanted to be on a witch hunt because uh now they say well he was just a figurehead (laughs) He was just a figurehead. Robert Mueller was just a figurehead being manipulated by the real evil people who were behind this entire witch hunt. This is a pure and simple witch hunt. 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 This witch hunt. Witch hunt. Pure and simple witch hunt. Reads and smells like a witch hunt. Why this investigation is nothing more than a witch hunt. But the entire thing has been a witch hunt. Pure and simple witch hunt. 
And that's a mantra that his Colt 45 has bought into. I love the poorly educated. And it has had a huge impact. I mean, one of the things that really drive, drove me most crazy by uh, the Republican reaction to Mueller's testimony is this uh, idea that they've hinged on to that somehow Trump's inappropriate comments and attempted firings of people like you know Don McGahn and his actual firing of Jeff Sessions and his firing of James Comey were all because he had righteous anger at the investigation. And that this, therefore, is a sign of what a good guy Trump is. <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. Because the first thing Trump said when Mueller was hired was, I'm fucked. That's the first thing he said. Correct. And he didn't say it because, oh, God, Robert Mueller's going to do a witch hunt on me and I'm going to go down in flames. He did it because he knew what the truth was. Correct. And he knew he was incredibly vulnerable to a guy who was a lifelong Republican with enormous credibility, who was thought at the time to be a, a stellar investigator, who was going to be able to find the truth. And that was what, why Trump thought he was fucked. Correct. It's not this idea that he goes on this this uh, search and destroy mission on Mueller's credibility with the witch hunt mantra because he's in righteous indignation. No, he's doing this because he's O.J. Simpson. And I, and I wrote a lot of columns during this entire investigation, but one of my favorites was when I predicted very early on that Trump's defense here was going to mirror that of O.J. Simpson, who killed two people in Los Angeles in, in 1994 and got away with it by attacking the investigation. All the facts were against him, but he attacked the investigation, and he did so, uh, and, his, and his, more importantly, his people did so, on a daily basis in a way that appealed specifically to one demographic, which was... African-Americans in Los Angeles, nine of which were on that jury. And so they like a laser focus for the year plus that occurred before the trial really got going on and before there was way before there was a verdict. That was their strategy. Make those people believe that nothing they hear is to be believed or that it's irrelevant. You attack the credibility of the investigation. The facts aren't on your side. Logic's not on your side. So we're going to go on a search and destroy mission. We're going to put up all sorts of bull crap. We're going to use, in that case, Mark Furman as this rogue racist police officer who somehow framed O.J. Simpson, even though he couldn't have framed him if he wanted to. Trump did exactly the same thing. By the way, Alan Dershowitz, one of O.J. Simpson's attorneys, was on effectively... Donald Trump's side during all this, just to, to tie it all together, not to mention that Trump and O.J. Simpson were once friends. The, the, there are so many parallels between what Simpson did and what Trump did, and Simpson did it because he knew he was guilty, and he knew that was, that was the only way out. Well, Trump did the same thing. That's why he said, I'm fucked. But because of delays, because the media, the right-wing media was on his side, because the left-wing media was incompetent and, and overpromised, and because Mueller was a wuss who I think got intimidated and held very much to the beyond the letter of the law, 
in, in a way that was very much towards Trump's benefit, all these things worked in Trump's favor. Number one was the delay. Because if, if suddenly, if we had never heard anything about the Russian investigation, and all of a sudden, in one day, we learned just some of the basic facts of the Russian investigation that, hey, look, uh, the, the president was trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow during the actual campaign and lying about it and then had his personal attorney lie about that to Congress in a way that certainly seems as if he suborned that perjury. If, if we learned that, oh, by the way, he fired the FBI director and his attorney general because he had, a- had told them that he needed their help in squashing the investigation, and they wouldn't provide it for him. If we if we learned all the contacts between the Trump campaign and and the Russian government and the praise of WikiLeaks and and uh, all the other things that frankly are evidence of collusion, although not proof of a criminal conspiracy, as well as all the other acts of obstruction that are outlined in the Mueller report, if this all happened in one day. In a, in a credible fashion, and then you know, Mueller immediately testified, this whole thing would have turned out very differently, especially if Mueller had done a halfway decent job of explaining all this to the average American citizen. I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, that unfortunately, that's what we got instead. And so the average American citizen is still in the dark. And what I mean by the, I mean, there's very few American citizens that are still in what would be perceived as swing voter category. We've, we've now so uh, separated ourselves into different camps and tribes, and we're so fragmented and so balkanized. But there's still a few people out there that could alter the perception of things, and specifically with regard to impeachment. You know, If you remember, my good friend, Congressman John Yarmuth, who I convinced to be in favor of Trump's impeachment, has said time and time again, That's not a question of if, but when Donald Trump will be impeached over all this. And the last time we spoke to John a couple of weeks ago, I questioned him about that because I feel as if Nancy Pelosi, his boss, the Speaker of the House, is playing a game. And she's actually playing a fairly politically, at least in her mind, a smart game. Here's what I think happened with Pelosi on this. She became convinced that because Trump cannot be removed, because the Republicans control the Senate, and that's accurate, because he can't be removed, it doesn't make any sense to go through with the impeachment process because it could backfire. It's not going to do any good politically. That's all she cares about is the politics of this. So she is against it philosophically. But she can't say that publicly because too much of her base is in favor of Donald Trump being impeached. And too many of her caucus members, including John Yarmouth, are in favor of impeachment. Now, John's in favor of it for the same reasons I am. The principle of it, the historical precedent aspect of it. What happens in the future if Donald Trump is not impeached? What does that say about a future potential tyrant and how we might be able to stop them? And whether or not impeachment becomes an irrelevant and impossible to impose tool to prevent a dictator, a tyrant, or a monarch? All these are very important questions, but they're irrelevant politically. Nancy Pelosi is a political animal. I believe, and this is where John and I differ. Now, John knows Nancy Pelosi very, very well. I don't. But sometimes that can actually work in your favor because John likes Nancy. He works with and for her. 
I mean, he's been critical of her at times. He has his eyes open about her, so I don't think he's delusional, but I think he might be a little naive. And what I think has happened here is Pelosi, here's the analogy I'll come up with. Pelosi doesn't want to invade whatever country. Pick pick a country. She does not want to invade this country because she thinks the casualties will be too great. So what she has told her lieutenants like Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, is, okay, look, I know you want to invade this country. I know a large part of our base wants to invade this country. I know that a large part of our caucus wants to invade. But here's what I'll I'll make you this deal. If we can take this island just outside of this country that you want to invade, if you can take that island, then I will let you go ahead and from there uh, try to invade the country itself. But she knows that she's created the circumstances where you can't take the island because you haven't given them enough resources and there's too much time that's passed and it's too difficult based upon the circumstances they're facing. So Wednesday was them trying to take the island just outside of the country as a foothold for a possible invasion. Well, thanks to Mueller. I'm not going to get into that. They weren't able to take the island. Now, there are some people who have not accepted that they were not able to take the island. I'm sure Nancy Pelosi is thrilled they weren't able to take the island because it means she doesn't have to make the call on whether or not to invade the country. There are some who are still saying, including John Yarmouth, that they are going to try to invade the country. I specifically asked via text. We, I didn't call him on this because, frankly, I think we might end up getting in a fight. And I don't want, I've lost too many friends over Donald Trump. I don't want to lose another one. Uh, so I've restricted my communications with John on this to text. And this will probably be a smart move uh, moving forward. But I wanted to clarify because, you know, hey, John, are you still in the it's not uh, if but when category? And he said yes. So he is still believing this is. You know, a situation where Trump eventually will be impeached. It's just a matter of when. However, when he was on this podcast, he said that what was going to happen was after Mueller's testimony, that a majority of the Democratic caucus would come out in favor of Trump's impeachment. That has not happened. What was expected to be floodgates turned out to be a trickle. I don't know what the exact number is now, but there's somewhere around give or take 100 members of the Democratic caucus, and I guess you could add uh, Justin Amash, former Republican from Michigan, who are in favor of impeaching the president on the record. That's not enough because that's not even half of the Democratic caucus. So there's no pressure on Nancy Pelosi to say, well, over half my caucus is in favor of this. We have to do it. Now, Nadler has sort of kind of opened an impeachment inquiry uh, but that appears to be mainly intended to uh, to bolster the legal case on subpoenas, which is fine, whatever. But that's not even in the realm of taking the island uh, outside the country. That's, you know, we're, we're not even to that point yet. And let's be clear, we're just on the verge of getting into high gear on the reelection campaign. So the reality is the time is running out here. And you know, I've often joked, but it's it's not that far off that Democrats are, are basically at this pace, they're on pace to get enough people to vote for Donald Trump's impeachment probably now, just after his second term is over with. That's where we are. Correct. So I don't see it happening. 
John Yarmouth does. I think Nancy Pelosi has played a game. I've oh, I've believed this for months, ever since Bill Barr uh, screwed with the whole narrative and and lied about what was in the Mueller report and the initial reaction to it. Uh, it was very clear to me that Nancy Pelosi is playing a game. I told John I hope he's right and I'm wrong, but generally in these kind of situations, I'm right. And I'm pretty sure I'm right here. So my guess is that barring some new major development, Donald Trump is not going to be actually impeached. And I wouldn't even recommend his impeachment if you're not going to be able to do it properly. And based upon the current political situation, I doubt they can do it uh, properly. Now, to be clear, you know, about half the country, 47 percent in a new, ironically enough, Fox News poll, 47 percent of the country is in favor of opening impeachment inquiry and impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. 47 percent, 45 percent are against opening an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. But that's not enough. You you need well over 50 percent to make this uh, viable, especially when you're just on the verge of an election. And the closer we get to an election, because it's not just Trump that's going to be on the ballot, every single one of Nancy Pelosi's Democrats is going to be on the ballot. And if she thinks it's going to hurt them politically, she has no incentive to do it uh, whatsoever. So we're right now in a situation where the most likely scenario, at least to me, is that Donald Trump faces no real consequences, at least as president, for all of his actions, all of his corruption, all of his obstruction— with regard to Russia's influence on the 2016 campaign. And that's sad. I mean, it's, it's, it really is. It's, it's just flat out ridiculous. But that's where we are, because that's who we are now. I mean, we're not capable, apparently, of pulling off something like this. We're better than that. No, we're not. We're not better than that. Unfortunately, you know, and I've written about this Many weeks ago, I said a great country would have already impeached Donald Trump. Unfortunately, the United States of America no longer qualifies. And let me tell you, because you know, we never get to the bottom of anything. It's part of how and why we're broken. But here's my very, very short version of what really happened in the Russian investigation. And by the way, this is giving Donald Trump every possible benefit of the doubt. This is the most benign interpretation of what we currently know. But here's what I think happened. I think Donald Trump never thought he was going to be president of the United States. I think he never thought he was going to be the Republican presidential nominee. I think that he did it at first as essentially a publicity stunt, uh, that uh, it would maybe potentially reignite his reality show, that it would uh, give him some new customers, new celebrity, new cachet. As it started to get momentum, I think he saw, wow, I'm really being taken seriously. Maybe I can translate how seriously I'm being taken as a potential presidential candidate into something that I've wanted to do for a very, very long time, which is to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Russia has never taken me seriously enough, but now maybe they will take me seriously enough because, look, I'm leading the Republican presidential nominating process. They've got to take me seriously. And so I think he saw this as an opportunity. And he had Michael Cohen pursue that opportunity. And the evidence is overwhelming that they did everything they possibly could to facilitate this massive project, this Trump Tower in Moscow. 
Now, the Russians, they're interested in the idea that Donald Trump is creating chaos in the American political system. They like this. They, they you know, they've had uh, communications with Trump in the past. He had his his uh, Miss Universe pageant in Russia. They never took him very seriously then. But they know that this is a guy who is ingratiating himself towards them. And they see this as a potential opportunity. They're also wanting to know what's up with this dude. Can he really win? Could we manipulate him? Could he be uh, used to forward our interests? And so they start to try to infiltrate the Trump campaign. And it's not difficult because the Trump campaign is small, unorganized, and let's be clear, it's filled with a bunch of idiots, imbeciles. So when you have people like Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, whatever that guy's last name is, Papadopoulos, Papadopoulos, uh, and, and you have people who are not ready for prime time, and they don't know what the hell they're doing. They're just happy to be taken seriously. And so it's not difficult at all for Russians to start to infiltrate the campaign, to find out what's really going on here. Can he win? Can he be trusted? Can he be manipulated? None of this is healthy. All this should scare the hell out of the average American, frankly, the average citizen of the world who believes that America needs to be a strong force against elements like Vladimir Putin and Russia. But that's not even the heart of this whole thing. So as time goes on, the Russians start to make more and more inroads. Most dramatically, they get a meeting with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and uh, Paul Manafort in Trump Tower on a day where Donald Trump is there. Now, the biggest lie Donald Trump has told, the most obvious lie Donald Trump has told and has had zero repercussions for, other than I have no business in Russia, is I didn't know about that meeting. That's absurd. That's... Donald Trump knows everything that's going on in the situation. Donald Trump Jr. would never have taken this meeting without bragging about it to his dad immediately. But he meets with these representatives of the Russian government and most interestingly, the, the narrative is that the meeting is a failure because the Russians didn't have what they promised. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but let's pretend it is true. To me, this meeting smells of the Russians sending some representatives to get a sense of, is the Trump campaign for real? Can they be trusted? Can they be manipulated? Can we make this work for us? Is this worth our time and effort? And I've used this analogy before. It's kind of like a romantic dalliance where both sides are interested. Frankly, the Trump people might have been more interested than the Russians because the Russians were afraid of, of having, quote unquote, sex with the Trump campaign because they were afraid of getting an STD because they didn't think that these people knew what the hell they were doing. And so they go back to Russia and they go, well, look, these people, they're a bunch of morons. Uh, but look, you know, it, they're going to they're going to be the nominee. Maybe we could, uh, you know, cause some chaos here. They probably can't win, but we can certainly undermine the electoral system and maybe cause some problems for Hillary, who we don't like. So that's when they engage in this online campaign, which has already been ongoing, by the way. But they ratchet that up 
And they do it in a way that is incredibly uh, consistent with Trump's own campaign strategy of voter suppression in the upper Midwestern states, specifically Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania. They, for some reason, targeted Minnesota. Uh, That didn't work as well, but it works. It shockingly works because it reduces, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan, Hillary Clinton's voter turnout, especially among black people. And this was a large part of the Russian strategies. Now, I don't know whether or not it was enough to tilt the election towards Donald Trump, but certainly the WikiLeaks uh, revelations hurt Hillary Clinton in the narrative perspective dramatically. And if you take WikiLeaks out of it, the narrative of the last month of the campaign is very different. Instead of this false uh, equality between the scandals of, of Hillary and Trump, it's all about Trump. Uh, It's all about all the problems he brings to the table. And I think it's much more difficult for him to get momentum. And Hillary doesn't have the crisis necessarily that she occurs that occurs once the James Comey press conference happens 10 days before the election, because she's so far out in front that it doesn't matter. WikiLeaks weighs her down during all of this. So. The Russians are thrilled to see Trump win. I don't know if we know exactly why, other than one, creating chaos, which they want. Two, maybe they think he's easily manipulated. They certainly know how to manipulate him. Forget about whether there's a P-tape or whatever. They know that all you have to do with Donald Trump is compliment him. Just be strong, be a celebrity, and compliment him, and he's your buddy. Correct. So he'll do whatever you want. And he's already said nice things about Putin during the campaign. So you don't need a Manchurian candidate scenario, which I've never believed in, to understand why the Russians wanted this to happen and why it was beneficial for them for Trump to win. Well, as soon as Trump wins, though, it's clear that he starts to worry that, one, he's president, and two, (laughs) which he's not prepared for and never anticipated, and two, that the way he became president is going to cause some problems. And he immediately goes into cover-up mode. That's why he immediately is asking for James Comey's loyalty and to go easy on Mike Flynn, which we still don't know all that, what that all was about, why Mike Flynn was lying about his conversation with the Russian ambassador during the transition as, as the incoming national security advisor. And so he's immediately in what I refer to already as OJ Simpson mode. I'm fucked. I need to start covering this up. That's why he fires Comey. That's why he's incensed that Jeff Sessions has recused himself from the Russian investigation and why he eventually fires Jeff Sessions in what I believe is by far the most impactful and underrated act of obstruction in this whole situation. But he then understands that once Mueller is hired, that he has to go full OJ. He has to destroy the investigation. He needs delay. He needs to appeal to his cult. And that, so everything becomes about cult preservation, because as long as you have the cult, I love the poorly educated. You cannot be removed in our system of governance, especially when your party controls the Senate. So everything becomes about cult maintenance. And that's what ends up happening here, that Trump needs to destroy the credibility of the investigation because he knows that there are incredibly devastating revelations. And that's why he doesn't do an interview with Mueller, 
because he knows he's going to be forced to lie. Instead, he lies in written answers saying 37 times he did not remember. Bill Clinton was impeached for far less egregious perjury about a far, far less important matter than what Donald Trump committed and which Robert Mueller confirmed on Wednesday, and no one cares because we suck. We're better than that. No, we're not. We, we, we suck. We can't get to the bottom of anything. Our attention spans are too short. We're too dumb. We can't even read a damn report. Anyway, just to finish where this all ends up going, Trump is still very concerned about what Mueller's going to find, rightfully so. So he fires Jeff Sessions on the day where it would get the least amount of publicity, the day after the Democrats take over the House of Representatives after the midterm elections. Democrats are celebrating. He gives this batshit crazy press conference that uh, dominates the headlines. He had already set the predicate that he was going to fire Sessions. I mean, it is, it is amazing to me that one of the elements of the Sessions firing that never set off any alarm bells, forget about the eventual hiring of Bill Barr, is that what does this do to the future of recusal? Trump publicly said he was going to fire Sessions because he recused himself properly from a major investigation into his own campaign. Well, in the future, no one's ever going to recuse themselves. <laughs> one, because it got Sessions fired. And, and two, how in the world does that, is that allowed to happen? You can't fire someone because they recuse themselves and publicly say that's why you're firing them. There was no other reason for the firing. None. And so I think Repub uh, Democrats and Republicans, not, Republicans aren't worth a damn anymore, but Democrats really dropped the ball in their reaction to uh, the Jeff Sessions firing, which was the key to this whole thing. And then Bill Barr uh, decides he's going to make a deal with Donald Trump. I'm not saying it's a conspiratorial upfront deal. A lot of this was wink, wink, nod, nod. And by the way, a lot of the Russian-Trump uh, uh, relationship was wink, wink, nod, nod. Much like a budding romantic relationship. That's why Trump Mueller couldn't prove a criminal conspiracy, because they're not going to put it in writing. They didn't need to. Both sides knew what their self-interest was, and they danced. It was a dance. And, you know, when Mueller's giving Trump every possible benefit of the doubt, you're never going to be able to prove it. And then when he says he can't indict a sitting president, but he also can't uh, outline the case against the sitting president because it would be unfair to that sitting president because he might face criminal charges when he's not president. I mean, everything's in Trump's favor. It's all set up for him. Uh, and so, anyway, uh, Bill Barr makes this deal where he's going to get back into the game after spending many years on the sidelines. Uh, and I've, I've uh, jokingly said, uh, sitting on his couch in his underwear watching Fox News Channel, he's put back into the game all of a sudden as attorney general, and in exchange for getting another bite uh, of the fame apple or the power apple, uh, Bill Barr is going to destroy Mueller's investigation. And he's the perfect person to do it because he's seen as an establishment figure and he even has a relationship with Robert Mueller, so people are going to trust him. And people trusted him when he came out with that summary. That was nothing but bullshit. And I said I did not trust that summary, and I turned out to be 100% vindicated. But we live in a world where once the narrative is set, it's almost impossible to undo because no one is paying attention 
Very, very few people uh, are news junkies. The vast majority of the population is at best gets headlines. And once they hear no collusion, no obstruction, exoneration, it's over. People move on, even though it made no sense and even though it was a lie. And, you know, we least used to live in a world where once people found out that something was a lie, that they had a dramatic reaction to that. Well, we don't for some reason anymore. For some reason, we're no longer outraged by lying. By the way, part of the reason why we're no longer outraged by lying is that our president does it on an hourly basis. Trump benefits from his own desensitization of our senses. That's That's redundant. But the reality is he has desensitized us in every possible way. We no longer care as much about lying. And, you know, there were many things that Mueller said on Wednesday that should have been massive news stories that would have gotten a public reaction that did not because we are so desensitized. That's where we currently are. And that's why Trump is going to be allowed to win here, really, whether he's impeached or not. But if he's not impeached, then he is completely won because there'll be no repercussions, no accountability and no preservation of historical precedent, which is incredibly dangerous for the future. So the bottom line of what really happened here, I don't believe that there was a quote unquote criminal conspiracy, although we'll never know for sure because there was a lot of evidence that was not provided. There were people that took the Fifth Amendment. There was literally evidence that was destroyed, which you hardly ever hear about, that if this involved Hillary Clinton, that's all the right wing media would be talking about. The president did not do an interview. He he lied in his answers, said thirty seven times he could not remember. So it's possible there was a, some sort of criminal conspiracy. I don't believe it was proven. I do believe 100% that he obstructed justice uh, in a way that was far more egregious than anything Bill Clinton did. He, I believe that Donald Trump should have been impeached. I believe that he should have been removed from office. But none of that's going to happen because every element of our society, every element of our culture, our media, our politics, our educational system, it's all broken. It's all broken. And it all comes to a head here. And that much like O.J. Simpson, Donald Trump has escaped the grasp of justice. Now, there are those people who think that after he is no longer in office, that something will happen to him legally. I'm not convinced of that. First of all, I'm convinced he might end up winning reelection, which would then alter the equation because a lot of the statute of limitations would run out before he's out of office. Plus, he's a two term president. And you're not going to take a two term president and go after him legally when he's in his 80s or whatever the hell he'll be. Uh, it's just not politically viable. It's just people will move on and decide, ah, this just isn't worth it. Let's just forget about Donald Trump. Uh, so I am not convinced he's going to be held accountable in any way, shape, or form. And this has major implications going forward in all sorts of ways. Uh, I, I, I believe, I really do believe, and this sounds uh, hyperbolic. This sounds you know, like Chicken Little, and I realize I'm a pessimist. But I really do believe that before my children, who are two and seven years old, uh, grow to a ripe old age, I really believe that this country, the United States of America, the greatest country ever created, is going to be fundamentally different. I believe we're heading right back towards, at best, a monarchy, if not some sort of dictatorship. And even though Trump's a fake dictator, a fake tyrant, uh, he is setting all the precedent. He is laying the groundwork. He is paving the path for a real tyrant to come along and have with no ability, no ability for anybody to stop that person, presumably a male. Uh, but who knows? It could be a female, too. 
the, the reality is that now, if, if I'm right about how this is all going to turn out, it will be impossible to impeach anybody for almost anything. Forget about removing them, even impeaching them. And uh, to me, this is incredibly dangerous territory. And of all the many, many problems that the Trump presidency has created, and I, I think the best analogy, and I used this with Bill Kristol when we interviewed him a couple months ago, when I correctly told him that the Mueller investigation was not going to change the world, uh, and he disagreed with me on that. Um, I think the best metaphor here is the house infested with termites. The house appears on the outside to be just fine. The economy is good. We're not in any wars. You know, there, obviously, we always have problems. But on the surface, the house, especially if you want to like Donald Trump, looks just fine. But I view the presidency very differently than most people, apparently. I view the presidency as a caretaker of that house. And that house is supposed to survive for generations and generations to come. Well, much like Trump's entire philosophy, which is whatever's good for him today is all that matters. And he doesn't care, for instance, about debt because, you know, hell, he could be dead tomorrow. Why, Why would he care about debt? And so the debt we're leaving our children, our children's children and their children doesn't mean anything to him. He's going to be long gone. He's, he just wants the, the benefits of spending other people's money, which is what he's been doing his entire business career. So as a caretaker of that house, I believe he is infesting the foundation with termites. And you can't see it right now. And he's not the only one. It didn't start with him. I think Bill Clinton played a, a major role in this, especially in the realm of lying. It's been going on for a long time. But, but now we're exponentially worse. And that the foundation for this house is being eaten away. And when it's going to collapse, I don't know. How it's going to collapse, I don't know. What's going to provoke it collapsing, I don't know. But it has been weakened now to the point where I am sure that within the next generation or two, it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be ugly. And a large part of that is going to be because of Donald Trump and our unwillingness or inability to hold him accountable for what happened here. Because this was as outrageous as it gets. A hostile foreign power influencing our election on his behalf, him lying about it, obstructing about it, firing the FBI director and the attorney general for the pure purposes of disrupting an investigation into finding out what the hell happened. And then, and this doesn't get said enough, and I don't say it enough, doing nothing to stop it from happening again in the future. In fact, proactively not doing anything or stopping any efforts to, to prevent it from happening again in this next election in 2020. But it's all, I believe, this is, this is a demarcation point. This is a demarcation point of when and if this doomsday scenario I outline occurs, it's going to be because of what we did not do here. And look, I, and I hope John Yarmuth and, and those in the Congress who are still believing that impeachment will happen are going to, are going to be right and will hold, uh, I will hold them to that to a certain degree. I will take their word for it, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, I, I really do not believe that Trump, much like O.J. Simpson, you know, other than his name being besmirched and eventually going to prison in another matter in Las Vegas. Maybe that's what will happen with Trump. Maybe that's what will happen with Trump, that eventually he'll be, he'll be held accountable for something that's somewhat related, but something that happens again in the future. I think that's a, a pretty decent uh, case scenario. But as of right now, with regard to the nature of our system, uh, I think that this has huge implications 
for us to do nothing about this because it opens the door for this to happen again and much, much worse in the future. Now, there are some other things I want to talk about before our hour is up. And uh, and a lot has been made this past weekend of some statements that uh, Trump made about Baltimore and specifically about Elijah Cummings and his district uh, in the Baltimore area. Now, Elijah Cummings is a black Democratic congressman who uh, you've heard on this program many times before because he's the guy who says, We're better than that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I love that clip because it says so much about what really is not going on. That, that Our leaders would like to believe that we are. We're better than that. But we're really not. And. Uh, we're, and it's being proven on a daily basis that we're not. And the president once again proved it by going after Baltimore and Elijah Cummings in a way that was completely inappropriate. And it has been so disheartening for me to see, although not surprising, the Trump cult and many Republicans, even some non-Trump fans, defending Trump's tweets that Baltimore is basically a shithole country. That's not the words that he uses, but he he basically referred to Baltimore as a shithole country, maybe even worse, Uh, rat-infested, no one would ever want to live there, that whole business, Uh, that the Republican response to this has been, well, he's right. Baltimore is terrible. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Baltimore is terrible. A lot of our cities are terrible. Uh, It's been terrible for a long time. And guess who's done absolutely nothing to help, or at least effectively done nothing, to correct that problem? Um, Donald Trump is president of the United States. Donald Trump has far more power and jurisdiction over Baltimore than Elijah Cummings does. Correct. And and Republicans and constitutionalists should understand that. I mean, one of the more amazing things I've seen on Twitter over the last 24 hours or so is – that supposed Republicans and constitutional uh, supporters don't understand the role of a congressperson. Trump doesn't understand the role of a congressperson. Uh, he, he, does, he actually said that Cummings should run his district better. A congressman doesn't run their district. They vote on national issues. They're one of 435 people of one chamber of Congress that has no power because right now, if you're a Democrat, you've got a Republican Senate and a Republican president. So you have no power effectively to do hardly anything. You're one out of 435. So he is not an executive power person over his district. There is an executive who has power over that area. His name is Donald fucking Trump. All right, it's not Elijah Cummings. Elijah Cummings goes to Congress. Now, there are some things he can do to help uh, on the fringes, but he has no executive power over that district of, of Maryland. None. But Trump is effectively indicting himself. Look at what a shithole city there is right side, outside of Washington, D.C. while I'm president of the United States. And somehow, because he's right in his assessment, of Baltimore, that this makes it okay. Actually, that doesn't make it okay because as president of the United States, you shouldn't be saying that kind of stuff about a U.S. city, especially when your entire premise is make a great America great again and you're criticizing other Democrats for pissing all over the United States. Holy hypocrisy, Batman. Nobody pisses on the United States more than Donald Trump, except he only pisses on the non-white areas. 
of the United States. He would never say this about, say, Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, a shithole city I've been to many times in Pennsylvania that's all white. There are lots of shithole cities in this country, just like there are all over the world. Some are white, some are black. Baltimore happens to be black. Gee, I wonder why it is that Trump only does this for black areas. Does that mean he's a racist? I don't know. He certainly acts like a racist because I think he thinks it helps him. Because he never does it about white areas, ever. And it almost doesn't matter whether he's actually a racist because he's pretending to be one if he's not because he thinks it will help him. One of the ways I think he thinks it will help him, and people have have criticized me for for suggesting that this is uh, Trump playing eight-dimensional chess, which I don't really normally believe he engages in. I think he's barely a checkers player and maybe plays, uh, you know, shoots and ladders more often than checkers. But uh, I have suggested that part of why he is provoking Democrats and liberals on race is because that will make it less likely that they will nominate an old, straight, white male named Joe Biden, who is by far the best chance to beat Donald Trump. And that Trump knows that if he doesn't face Biden, he's got a much better chance at re-election, and the best way to not face Biden is to trigger liberals so much that they are so incensed on the issue of race that they can't bring themselves to nominate a straight, white, old male named Joe Biden. I think Trump is capable of that kind of analysis. I think the people running his campaign are more than capable of that type of analysis. I think they've looked at the numbers and they go, you know what? We thought we were fucked when Mueller took over. We are really fucked if Joe Biden is the nominee. And we need to do everything we can to prevent that. Criticizing Joe Biden directly isn't going to work because that actually helps Joe Biden. Because the liberal base is so hateful of us, they'll think that we us attacking Biden is a badge of honor. So if you've noticed, while he still attacks Biden from time to time, and he's clearly terrified of Biden... I think that they're engaged in a different strategy here, one that might be effective, which is if you trigger the other side, you create so much anger in them that they lose their minds and they feel like they have to nominate a Kamala Harris or at least an Elizabeth Warren or maybe go with the gay guy and Pete Buttigieg. I mean, they can't go, they can't be, the winner of the woke Olympics cannot be an old, straight, white male who's somewhat moderate named Joe Biden. In the, and that's the thinking here. And I think there's some logic to that. I have used the analogy previously that this is like a custody battle where Trump has custody of the kid, even though he shouldn't have it. And the other side goes to court to get custody back. And Trump knows exactly what buttons to push on his former spouse, let's say, since he is a former Democrat. He knows exactly what buttons to push to drive them crazy so they go bananas in front of the judge. And the judge says, well, I'm sorry, I can't take custody away because you're freaking nuts. That's partially what's happening here. He's driving liberals crazy with the, this racial division. And he always does it in, you know, I think, a way that is crafted so he goes just enough to the line where he won't totally piss off uh, Republicans in Congress, Republicans in the Senate, not that they have any backbone at all. But it does feel to me calculated. Like, this isn't totally him flying off the handle on Twitter. 
that he he does seem to allow himself to have some argument that his base or his cult will latch onto. Like, for instance, the fact that Baltimore is a crappy city. It should be pointed out that a lot of uh, Cummings District is not Baltimore and is actually doing quite well. So there's there is some inaccuracy in in all of this. But more importantly, it's obvious what Trump is doing here. He's changing the subject. He's igniting racial divisions. He's trying to trigger the left. And I actually think, and I've said this uh, to some criticism on Twitter, that unfortunately this is a strategy that could work, not just in preventing Biden from being the nominee, but also from the standpoint of if you make this election about how uh, our big cities, which are all – uh, governed, or uh, not that Cummings is a governor, but you know, that's what Trump is trying to do here. He's trying to make the Elijah Cummings black Democrat in charge of his district, which is not factually accurate. But uh, it is clear that the, you know, the mayors of most of these, almost all of these big cities that are, are, are crappy places, including here in Los Angeles, they're Democrats. So if you're trying to appeal to non-urban whites, that's Trump's base. That's who has to vote for him, for him to win re-election specifically in Pennsylvania and Florida. It's not a bad strategy to make those non-urban whites fearful of what liberals have done to our big cities. That's not a bad strategy, especially when you don't want this to be a referendum on you and the reality that most people don't even like you. So if this is a referendum on liberals and wokeness and how nutty they've become and what they've done to our big cities and also scaring white people into thinking that that what's happened in Baltimore might happen to their area if these people get in charge again, even though there's there's a disconnect there, but that doesn't matter. We're talking about people's emotions and perceptions. That's not a bad way to do this, especially when you don't have many other options. I mean, it's a dastardly strategy, but it could work and it might be the only way Trump has at winning re-election, it does, send, it does feel a little bit like desperation. But let's be clear. If Joe Biden is not the nominee, then Donald Trump is the favorite for sure to win re-election. Doesn't mean he can't be beaten, but he is the favorite. We saw more evidence of that again this week. There was a poll in Ohio from Quinnipiac, a polling group I used to work for many, many years ago, where Joe Biden is beating Donald Trump badly in Ohio. Now, if Democrats win Ohio, it's over. (laughs) Because if you win Ohio, you're going to win Pennsylvania. And Trump cannot win without Ohio and Pennsylvania. He could actually theoretically even lose Florida if he wins Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and maybe one other state. And and I don't think he's going to lose Florida. But you know, especially against well, you know, against Biden, he might lose. But against anybody else, I think he wins Florida for sure. But Democrats are delusional about how easy this is going to be to beat him. And I think they're also naive about what his true intent here. I don't know whether or not Donald Trump is a racist. I mean, he, he likes a lot of black people, but only black people that like him, that say nice things about him. So that's what Trump is more than anything else. He's someone who, if you like him, he likes you. You say nice things about him, he will like you. If he needs you, he will like you. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. Now, all other things being equal, if you have dark skin, my guess is he probably thinks less of you. By the way, he also thinks less of you if you're not a celebrity. 
So there's lots of things about people that Donald Trump thinks less of. Skin color is probably in that in that group of, of uh, characteristics. I am very hesitant to say he is a flat out racist because I think that you know that's a horrible thing to say about somebody. And if, unless you have 100 percent proof, uh, then you shouldn't say it. But I'll tell you what, Trump has provided an awful lot of evidence, certainly enough evidence where he doesn't deserve any benefit of the doubt. That's for sure. And when, when, you, when you constantly are doing this, you're either a racist or you're just pretending to be one for political advantage. And I'm not sure there's much difference in those two things. Uh, one other, the other element of this thing, which also bothers me, which doesn't get enough play, is how much this shows what a hypocrite Trump is on the issue of loving America. Nobody has shit on America more than Donald Trump. He hates America. I mean, he craps all over America all the time, just like he did with Baltimore, as if Baltimore is not part of America. It is. And unlike Elijah Cummings, you know who has 100% jurisdiction and governance over Baltimore, as he does over every inch of the United States of America? Donald freaking Trump. And it's just amazing to me that he gets no, among any, what's left of conservatism, any blowback on that issue uh, whatsoever. A couple other news stories before uh, we run out of time. Uh, further evidence that he got boondoggled on North Korea, uh, that Kim Jong-un uh, totally manipulated him, as, as I've been saying uh, for many, many months, that all of this is a charade and that the North Korean uh, missile program is up and running and more substantial than it was before the summits with Kim Jong-un. So I certainly hope Donald Trump and his fans uh, enjoyed those bogus photo ops and the trip to the DMZ for the fake history that he made, because it certainly appears as if he got had, which is not a surprise. Uh, Donald Trump won in the Supreme Court with regard to the funding of his wall, the national emergency, $2.5 billion, the Supreme Court said, can be taken out of the military budget to help build the wall. That's still not going to do it, folks. I have said time and time again that especially if Donald Trump is not reelected, there's going to be no wall. There will be no wall. That was always a bogus promise. There's still not going to be a wall because $2.5 billion ain't going to do it. There's going to be delays, and we got an election coming, and if Donald Trump loses, the first thing that his, uh, the person who defeats him is going to do is going to stop all work on a wall. He has made a wall toxic. I'm in favor of a wall of some sort. Uh, if it's you know, economically feasible, but uh, this is all just to fake fight for his Colt 45 base, and it has been very effective for him. And, of course, since he won in the Supreme Court, they will perceive it as, aha, the wall is now going to be built. No, there's not going to be a wall built. Uh, but, hey, in, enjoy your fake fantasy because you know, that's what Trump thrives on. Uh, the budget deal that was made that uh, Congressman John Yarmouth, the head of the Budget Committee of the House of Representatives, uh, foreshadowed for us is a total joke from conservative perspective. Conservatism is dead. We are spending ridiculous amounts of money. Nancy Pelosi is getting everything she wants. Chuck Schumer is getting everything he wants. And there's no pushback from the right wing media. There's no pushback from Republicans in Congress, hardly in any at all, uh, because conservatism is dead. It was apparently all a big fraud to begin with. It never really existed. It was, and I, you know, I guess it was just a way of going after Barack Obama. The whole Tea Party thing, that was all bullshit. It was all bullshit. No one really believed in it. It was probably just uh, facilitated and motivated mostly by racism. Unfortunately, I, I can't believe I'm saying that, but that's, that's the only conclusion I can come to because uh, Donald Trump is, is spending a, a far worse clip than Barack Obama uh, ever dreamed of doing. 
and in a, in a time of economic prosperity, when the debt and deficit should be going down. Instead, they're exploding, and now we've uh, eliminated the debt ceiling for two years, which when Donald Trump was not president, he mocked for doing, uh, I think he mocked it for a few months even. I mean, he's just such a damn hypocrite, but we don't care because we're all so desensitized. Uh, the Democratic debates are coming up this weekend, actually this week. Uh, I am not going to be able to provide analysis of that because I'm uh, going to be not doing the podcast for the next week and a half. So the next two episodes will be postponed. Uh, if I might be able to now, uh, provide some analysis on Twitter. So if you're interested, uh, check that out. Uh, but they are big debates. Joe Biden needs to come out strong and show that he's in charge. If he does not, uh, then it might be big trouble for Joe Biden. And if it's big trouble for Joe Biden, I still believe that that's good news for Donald Trump, because if his opponent is any of the other four who can win the nomination, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg, the election becomes about them, not him. And that's what Donald Trump desperately needs to win re-election. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be taking a short hiatus from the podcast. should be back in about a week and a half, so we'll look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, please make sure that you subscribe to, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual number one pod. That's individual one pod. As is always the case, we end with our updated percentages on Trump being removed from office. Now at a measly 1% post Robert Mueller's testimony and his chances for re-election, which I'll put at 53%. A lot of that, of course, based upon whether or not Joe Biden is the Democratic presidential nominee. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.